0: I'm, I'm upset no one went there with the your mama jokes. It would, it, it would have been a better way to go, Stephen. Okay. Hello, my name's Aisha Thomas-Smith and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. This week, we'll be looking back at the biggest stories of the last seven days, bringing you the bigger picture behind last week's budget and hearing from our resident eggheads on the policies that they think we should have seen. So last week, guys, I asked you all for your predictions on what spreadsheet Phil would be wearing when he dropped the budget. So to kick off the fun, let's revisit those predictions and find out who was the closest. Maybe yeah, uh, basically a little waistcoat under under the jacket. Um,
1: quite traditional, quite classic.
2: A nice blue suit and pink shirt and blue tie. I'm going to be quite specific on this. So
3: I think his catchphrase has to be something like, like um. Look over there! <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, first up we've got Neff economist Laurie McFarlane. Now Laurie, you predicted that he would be wearing a blue suit, a pink shirt and a blue tie. Playing it safe, some might say?
2: I think so. I think he was wearing a blue suit, was that, he? That's going to come later, so this <laughs> is a whole thing that we're doing. Okay, okay sorry. Yeah,
0: going. Just say hello, Laurie. Hello. <laughs> Next up, Alice Martin, who heads up our work on housing and jobs. Now, Alice, you went for a three-piece suit and waistcoat combo. Do you still feel good about that? Very. Hi. Hi, hi, Alice. Thank you for respecting what we're doing. Okay, and Stephen, last but not least, senior economist, Stephen Devlin. You went rogue and predicted that Hammond <laughs> would be wearing a hat. A bowler hat, I think you said. Um, well, I didn't
3: any- tie myself down to the specific type of hat. <laughs> I was just going for hat in general.
0: Okay, I think Ebola bowler hat was mentioned. Um, <laughs> any regrets about that?
3: Well, obviously that was wrong. <laughs> so, yes, although I don't feel it was that important to win this competition.
0: Whoa, whoa. Okay, Sorry. all right. <laughs> okay, um, so I can reveal. That, as I'm sure you've all seen, he was in fact wearing a blue suit with a white shirt and a blue tie. So, Laurie, yes. you were the closest. Would Congratulations. I win? £4 pound vouch for Blockbuster. Yes. Blockbuster
2: so, <laughs> still exist?
3: There's a couple of them. <laughs> it was unfair, though, because he got to go first, so obviously he was going to guess a blue suit, and then if I guessed blue suit, that would have been kind of boring.
0: Mm. Mm. There's not that many Blockbusters,
2: Stephen. <laughs> it's, it's fine, it's, it's, it's true. fine. China, China, China,
4: China. It's very, very clear that a lot of business people are extremely unhappy about the lack of clarity they're getting from the government on the show. Hello, Rupert Murdoch's back in town with a new bid for the 61% of Sky he doesn't already own. It was
2: a budget statement that never mentioned Brexit, but felt largely dictated by it. For all his attempts to sound upbeat about
0: it... Okay, so we're all back. And now we're going we're gonna to do a segment that takes a look back at the biggest stories of the last seven days. And it's a segment that I'm calling What I Miss. <laughs> <laughs> so, Laurie, which one of Donald Trump's fave countries has made the headlines this week?
2: This is the news that uh, China's uh, banking system has tripled in size since 2008, something that hasn't been... That widely reported until now, and it's overtaken the Eurozone now as the largest banking system in the world. Also, the three biggest banks in the world are now Chinese. Um, So this kind of growth is massive, unprecedented, tripling since the financial crisis. Uh, So it says a lot about China's growing role in the world, but there's also quite a lot of concern that uh, this is largely a result of China uh, sort of fueling a massive bubble uh, in lots of things like real estate and uh, lots of kind of wasteful investment. And the real fears that this could uh, all come crashing down with bigger reverberations around the world.
0: Oh, sounds sounds like maybe Donald Trump's right to make us all scared. Could be. About everything. All right, Alice, which notoriously unpopular estate agents have ironically priced themselves out of the market? Um
1: yeah well this is news that um Foxtons, uh everyone's favorite London-based estate agent has had its uh, profits halved last year. And uh basically this is because or one of the reasons is because house house prices are now so high partly because of actions um like uh those of Foxtons and other estate agents in kind of helping to 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 prop up those prices for for big sales. Um Prices are now so high that people just can't afford to buy them at all so uh, business is down for Foxton's. There's probably other reasons as well that are are, um, playing into this decline such as the fact that um, Brexit happened uh, or is happening Um, and so less people are kind of wanting to take risks in in the market and buy properties. Um, But also in London, I'm wondering if this is part of the reason, a lot of homes now a lot of new build homes are sold off plan these you know, big developments uh, where you basically go in and do a deal straight off um, from a brochure. And estate agents don't really get a look in there, so that could be part of
0: it. So Stephen, for your headline, which which Mr Burns-esque supervillain is up to no good once again?
3: <laughs> yeah, so the Cheeky Monkeys, the Murdochs, are trying to take over the world again and um, are launching another bid to take over Sky. Uh, you might remember they tried to do this in 2011, and um, it got pushed back because of the whole uh, phone hacking scandal and some concerns that Ofcom and others raised about media plurality. Um, but they're at it again, and they reckon it's changed now because they've they've sort of split up the company into one half that deals with all the publishing and the papers, uh, and another half that's deals with entertainment, Fox News, and things like that. And they think this solves the problem, basically. But of course, what you have to remember is that it's still the case that Rupert Murdoch is the chair of one company and his son is the chair of the other. So it's hardly like there's much of a separation between them. Um, And they also think that it's not so bad for them to be taking across, uh, taking control of so much media because these days, according to them, people are consulting more and more different media sources. but that's in fact demonstrably false. Um, the Media Reform Coalition put out an interesting paper which showed that actually people are consulting fewer and fewer sources for their news now. So it's even more concerning if we end up with basically one person um, in charge of all of our media.
0: So do you think he's going to get his grubby mitts on it in the end? I hope
3: not. I think, I think it's possibly unlikely. The The culture secretary has indicated she might intervene um, I think there's a, sort of, there's a sort of popular backlash against some parts of the media that might make it a bit more difficult to parliament, for Parliament to not intervene. So I'm kind of sceptical to go through, but you never know. Rupert Murdoch has so much political power, you never know what strings he's pulling behind the scenes.
0: Mm, maybe he owns an F.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know, call Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer.
0: Yeah. OK, gang, so Philip Hammond got out the old red box last Wednesday to deliver his first budget. Unfortunately, you all missed the mark with your catchphrase predictions, um, but do you think you were close on his overall message? Pretty much.
3: I think we knew what he was going to say, roughly, and we knew what he wasn't going to say, and what he wasn't going to say was a whole bunch of stuff, and he didn't do that. Um, So I think we did get it, roughly right.
2: Uh, Laurie's done a lot of work looking at the particulars of it. I think from memory, my catchphrase was short-term economic fudge. Yes, it was. In contrast to uh, George Osborne's long-term economic plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that was not far off the mark. He kind of dodged the big issues, um, sort of mumbled through um, on doing some tinkering. But so, yeah, I think we were not far away.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, made a surprising amount of jokes, though.
1: Yeah, we didn't really predict the jokes coming.
4: Mm. £270 million to keep the UK at the forefront of disruptive technologies like biotech, robotic systems and driverless vehicles, a technology I believe the party opposite knows something about.
0: (laughs) We'll get on to the joke. So some people said that this was a little bit of a keep calm and look over their budget from Big Phil after he failed to even say the word Brexit and barely mentioned the fact that we're leaving the EU. What What was all that about?
2: I think, by and large, this comes back to the uh, short-term economic fudge. I think that the, he basically avoided all the, may, many of the big issues, including, uh, of course, none other bigger than Brexit. Um, and really, he was trying his best to paint a rosy picture of the way that things are going. Uh, and by really not saying, not tackling the big issues, uh, yeah, he was just trying to muddle through, I think.
3: But, of course, at the same time, the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, published there... Uh, forecasts and uh, predictions about what's going to happen and in that release there was some, uh, some revealing information about what they expect to happen at, at the time of Brexit. So they they sort of revised down growth estimates for 2019 when we're expected to come out of uh, the EU. They also um, publish information about the, the costs of limiting migration um, and changes to productivity and things like that. So you know Philip Hahn didn't mention it but the the forecasts and the actual statistics from the independent experts kind of tells a different story I think
1: yeah there was a there was a specter of brexit hanging over it I suppose um but I'd be interested to know like how effective that is as a strategy to just not talk about the various elephants in the room like brexit like housing mm. Um also it kind of depends on on who watches these things like obviously all of the the wonks and the eggheads are <laughs> watching it and and journalists too but how much of this you know is it enough to just have a strong soundbite on one issue that resonates with people and you can kind of fudge have your short-term fudge for the rest maybe maybe that's quite an effective way to do it I mean it's it's frustrating when we know kind of the serious issues that are there but we'll have to see what the kind of reaction is um, in weeks to come.
0: Mm. So some people have some people have said that the the fact that this was quite a conservative with a small c cautious budget does speak to the the upcoming Brexit negotiations and and that he kind of should be commended for playing within the boundaries of of the unknown. What would you guys say about that?
3: Yeah I mean it's one thing to be cautious when you don't really know what's going to happen but we kind of do know what's going to happen. <laughs> we know that we're going to come out of the EU and that's going to be a massive economic rupture. So to not be doing anything, to be being conservative in, in, within that context is a bit irresponsible, I think. You know, if you know that that's coming up, you need to be preparing for it and not just saying, well, let's just wait and see if it's as bad as, as we think it might be. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think a conservative with a small c approach is appropriate here.
0: OK, so let's get stuck into policy.
4: The difference in national insurance contributions is no longer justified by the difference in benefit entitlements. Such dramatically different treatment of two people earning essentially the same undermines the fairness of our tax system.
0: It seems like the rise in national insurance for self-employed people was the big headline of this budget. Um, Alice, what does this increase mean for people who are self-employed?
1: Well the headline really is that self-employed people who are on moderate or middle incomes and high incomes um will now be paying more tax or they will be as of as of next year. Um but l- people who are self-employed on lower pay uh won't be affected. Some might even be paying slightly less tax. Um the details are are a bit complicated. I can I can <laughs> go there if you're interested. Um so <laughs> Oh, you should go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so self-employed people paying the main rate um, of class four national insurance contributions or NICS, you might have heard talk about, um, will see an increase from 9% to 10% in 2018 and then that will go up another 1% to 11% in 2019. Um, the impact probably will be that people who are earning around 50,000 or more will be paying an additional £600 a year or more, depending on what you're earning um so it will raise more money um in taxes for for the government um so it is it's progressive in that sense and um as I said low people on very low incomes um won't be affected but I think there's a risk that it's it's not really telling a full um or it's not really giving the full picture of what's going on with the rise in self-employment at the moment which is that people are some people are entering self-employment not through choice and along with that they're having to take on a lot of um responsibilities and 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 risks really um some of the stuff we talked about last week you know they don't get sick pay they don't get holiday pay um they don't get parental leave um and so it this these kinds of policies really need to come as part of a bigger package that actually deals with the various insecurities that self-employed people, particularly those on lower incomes, are facing. Also, I think it, it, it was a missed opportunity, really, to to focus in on the companies themselves that are using self-employment often falsely to to build that to, to to build a workforce. So, um, half of people working in the construction sector here in the UK are falsely self-employed, and they're bosses are getting away with paying far fewer taxes because of that, so under this change in regulation those contractors, the people doing the work will probably be paying slightly more tax but their bosses won't, won't be paying any more and that seems unfair to me.
0: Doesn't it, doesn't it kind of make sense for self-employed people to be paying less tax because of the, the, them not having access to the benefits that you mentioned like sick pay and maternity, so in the interest of kind of fairness, which Hammond invoked a lot, is uh, is increasing the tax that they pay fair? Yeah, I think it's a hard one because I think you, you
1: don't want a situation where people are choosing to go into self-employment to avoid having to pay um, as much tax. And you could argue that at the higher end, of, you know, with high earners, that is what's happening. This whole question really is is about fairness and you have to look, I suppose, at the distributional effects of, of what this what this policy change will have. But as I said, it doesn't really do anything about the insecurity and um, the kind of risk taken on by so many people now as they,
0: they enter self-employment. Um, Okay, so we've got a hike for the self-employed, which seems to be ruffling a few feathers, um, but haven't also introduced measures to help people who are paying higher business rates, right? So Laurie, for people listening who don't run a business, um, can you tell us what business rates are, how they work, and why is the government stepping in?
2: Yeah, so business rates are a tax on the value of uh, non-domestic property, so any property that is not a house, effectively. Uh, And I I guess uh, it can be compared in some sense to council tax, uh, which is what you pay if you're occupying a residential building. Um, Now, the difference between council tax and business rates, however, is that business rates, the value of the property gets revalued relatively frequently. Um, Whereas council tax, the council tax that you pay is based on what the value of your property was in 1990. And they just haven't bothered to, uh, to uprate that. Whereas business rates, they do uprate it fairly regularly. And the reason this has caused a fuss is because they were last revalued in 2008. And obviously, since then, you've had massive increase in property values, particularly in London and the southeast. Uh, and so in doing so, by revaluing and changing the, changing the amount that people have to pay, businesses, particularly in London and the southeast, are East, are facing quite a steep increase in the amount that they have to pay. Um, now, it's important to point out that the, the flip side of that is that actually many parts of the country are actually facing a reduction in the business rates. So pl- many areas, places like Middlesbrough, for example, are seeing their rates seeing them go down by 15%. Uh, but nonetheless, this was causing uh, quite a bit of, of discontent. And uh, in the budget, the Chancellor had acted, they introduced a couple of measures to try and mitigate this. Uh, he introduced a cap on the increase that some businesses face. Uh, He introduced a discount for pubs, which was uh, very uh, very nice of him, and he also introduced a hardship fund for areas that are being uh, particularly hard hit.
0: So is that gonna satisfy people, is that enough?
2: Um I think it I think it will I think it will suffice for the time being. I mean I think there's a long rumbling debate uh among people as to whether business rates as they're currently structured is the is is the right tax to have, whether they should be changed or not. But uh but yeah, the Chancellor's approach system is basically um, you know, do something over the short term to try and um you know sort of shave off the mo the, the, the hardest edges.
0: Awesome. So hopefully it'll keep them the mobs at bay for now. So the other big headline um, from the budget was 2 billion pledged over three years for social care. Um, Stephen, could you give us a little explainer on what social care is, how it works, who pays for it, and and how this policy is going to affect it?
3: Yeah, so social care in the UK is basically the system that we use, um, to put it simply, to look after people that can't look after themselves. So, Um, The majority of that are uh, over 65s who are in care homes, for example, um, but also includes um, various other categories of people. Um, And the way we do that in the UK is it's sort of funded through local authorities. Um, They get uh, a grant from the central government and then the local authorities commission out uh, care in their local areas. Um, And we spend about um, £17 billion at the moment that's just in England, uh, on social care. Uh, and that's compared to about 116 billion on the NHS. So these are two sort of separate systems. We we do social care almost completely separately from the NHS. A lot of people think that's a problem, but that's how we do it in the UK. And the social care system is under a lot of strain at the moment. There's been a lot of complaints uh, from providers, from local authorities, that uh, there's not enough money, there's not enough beds. Um, so the Chancellor has put in an extra two billion pounds over the next three years that's only one billion in the the sort of this year um, so when you compare that to the 17 billion that we spend on it it's not a huge increase and indeed most experts think that was that's far less than what we actually need to put in uh, to make up uh, for all the problems but it's good it's better than not putting anything in at all um, but you know, part of the problem that we have with the social care system is not just how much money goes into it, but also the way in which, or sort of the model which we use to provide social care. So at the moment, there's a large chunk of that uh, social care is is provided by these very large private providers. They're sort of chain providers of social care, and they work on this model um, that uh, basically sort of has to give large returns to investors and so there, there are quite big costs associated with that in terms of reimbursing um, private investors who expect a profit. So, um, you know, actually, a lot of the money that we pump into the social care system is, is going to sort of get diverted towards these, these profits to investors. And we think that's a bit of a problem and that you should be thinking about not just putting more money into the system, but also thinking about different models of provision, you know, whether that's, uh, more sort of, um, uh, locally led initiatives, more uh, publicly owned provision, uh, lots of different models, but which are, can be you know, cheaper and, and better quality in some cases.
0: Hmm. So, so F- Philip Hammond did announce that they were going to be looking into different ways to fund social care, but one of the things he ruled out was what, what he calls the death tax or, or inheritance tax.
4: For the avoidance of doubt, Mr Deputy Speaker, I would like to make it clear that those options do not include and never have included exhuming Labour's hated death tax.
0: What do you think about, about him ruling that out? What does that mean?
4: Well, I think there's definitely a, a serious discussion to be had
2: about how to sustainably fund um, social care, for example, and the NHS. Uh, and there are various options being discussed, as death tax is one. For me, though, I think before we get into to discussions about new taxes, I think it's important to highlight that, for example, since 2010, The cuts that the government's made to corporation tax, which have been significant uh, from 28% down to 20% and then now on to 17%, that's costing the government over £10 billion a year in lost revenue. And that would go a long way to plugging the gaps in social care, the NHS and other things as well. So maybe we should be thinking about whether it's wise to continue cutting corporation tax uh, when there's such crises in these key public services.
0: All right, guys. So what about the big figures? So growth forecasts are, are decent and stable and debt and borrowing is set to go down. Can we, can we trust that? Should we be happy?
4: I report today on an economy that has continued to fo- confound the commentators with robust growth. A labour market delivering record employment and a deficit down by over two thirds.
2: Well, I think the first thing to, uh, to point out is that the Office of Budget Responsibility, so the official forecaster. Um, It does think that the government will now borrow £24 billion less over the next five years than it thought we would in November. Um, But then again, that doesn't come close to reversing the about £120 billion increase that they forecast because of uh, Brexit. I know, but taking a bit of a step back, though, I think that when we're talking about the the public finances, things like debt uh, and deficit, I think it's important that we put them in, in some kind of context, uh, because two things are really most important when we're talking about this. One is the size of the, the debt relative to the size of the economy, uh, and the other is how much it costs to service that debt, so how much we're paying in interest. Uh and on the size on the in terms of the size of the debt relative to the economy uh, we're currently about 82-83%, which um, is certainly higher than we were before the financial crisis. But in historical terms, it's actually not uh, that high. I think we were up at uh, roughly about 260% uh, after World War II, for example. Um, the actually most important thing, though, is how much it's costing us to service that debt. So how much are we paying in interest uh, rather than spending things on, on main public services? And actually, when we look at this, we're actually spending, in terms of relative to the size of the economy, we're spending the lowest amount we've ever spent in our history uh, on on interest payments, despite uh, the debt. And there's really two reasons for this. One of them is just because interest rates are really low and the government's been able to refinance its debt. But the other one, a uh, more interesting one, is uh, a result of uh, quantitative easing. Um, and that's because the, the Bank of England bought up a lot of government bonds using new money after the financial crisis. And we're at the stage now where the Bank of England owns about a quarter of all of the government's debt. Um, Now, of course, the Bank of England is actually owned by the government, and so we're in the weird position where uh, the government owns a quarter of its debt to itself, and when the government pays interest uh, on these bonds to the Bank of England, it pays interest to the Bank of England, the Bank of England sits on it for a while and then gives it back to the Treasury. So we're not paying any interest on a quarter of the debt uh, at all, Um, and that's another reason why uh, the cost of of this is actually really low at the moment. So it's all very funny money.
1: Is it worth saying as well that, um... We should probably talk about personal debt when we're talking about the debt crisis because that is still climbing and people who are in debt personally are paying interest on that debt they're paying high levels of interest on that debt I think it's a bit of a smokescreen to only be talking about one type of debt when we know that there's a there's a personal debt crisis going on
2: yeah it was funny because in the in the budget Philip Hammond said that he talked about ensuring the country lives within its means and he also mm. talked about not saddling uh, future generations uh, with debt. But then again, when you look at the forecast from the government's forecaster, it's forecasting a ballooning in household debt uh, relative to incomes uh, as a result of uh, house prices continuing to rise mm-hmm. further than income, so more mortgage debt, but also more consumer credit, people basically spending more than they're earning uh, and obviously having to pay quite high interest rates in many cases to, to finance that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, we're talking about personal debt, we're talking about household debt. What overall impact is this budget going to have on people's living standards in the UK?
3: Well, I think it's not going to have much of an impact at all. He hasn't really made any significant changes that are going to you know, counteract the challenges we have. We've seen that real wages have stagnated or fallen for uh, more than a decade now, which is uh, an unprecedented uh, trend. It's really been you know, almost hundreds of years since that's, such a thing has happened. Nothing in the budget really is going to address that Um there 's the cost of living that we 're expecting to go up uh, with the inflation as a result of um, sterling 's depreciation uh, you know people 's energy bills and food food bills going up nothing to deal with that uh, and there 's still you know plowing ahead with these welfare cuts that are are massively regressive and are going to take take money out of the pockets of of people that really need it so Uh, you know, overall, I think it's really not good for people's living standards.
1: Just to add to the misery, rents are going up. (laughs) Mm. We know that house prices are going up. Um, It's cash buyers now who are the only people that can afford to buy homes, according to to some nationwide statistics out last week. Um, People who do manage to take out mortgages are taking out enormous mortgages because of house prices rising, but a lot of people are just locked out completely. So I think there's a kind of irony there to some of Philip Hanman's comments about um, you know, making sure uh, the next generations have a good deal. It, it's clearly not happening in the world of housing, so I don't know how he can get away with that.
2: I think as well it's important when we're talking about uh, living standards and when the government talks about it in the context of the budget, it usually talks about in terms of what's happening on average, so what's going to happen to real earnings on average. Uh, and that kind of masks quite a big difference uh, along the income distribution. Um, And crucially, like Stephen said, Big factor here is what's happening with the welfare cuts. So Philip Hammond, although he's not introducing any new ones, he's implementing all the ones that were introduced by George George Osborne. Uh, And that has the effect of dramatically reducing incomes of those at the lower end of the income distribution. Uh, And just last week, the uh, IFS, Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, they predict that over the next five years, while on average, most people will see an increase in their earnings after inflation, those in the bottom 15%, will. see quite a severe decrease once you take into consideration uh, inflation and also housing costs and so we need to be quite careful when we're just talking about these average figures because there is a massive difference between if you're at the lower end or if you're at the higher end.
0: So not a very rosy picture but we soldier on. Thanks Laurie, Alice and Stephen for taking us on a deep dive into last week's budget but obviously you're not getting away that easy because I'm a very unpleasant person. So, I'm gonna put you all in the hot seat and play the aptly named Chancellor for a day. Not my title.
4: I now call Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer.
0: I want each of you to tell me, one by one, if you were in charge of the budget, which policy would you introduce and what would be your killer dad joke to get team shoulders jiggling? So first up, Laurie, what would be your policy and what's your joke?
2: Well, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, I am very, very serious about rebalancing the economy and investing in all the parts of the country, particularly the ones which have been neglected for decades. Um, For too long, our banking uh, sector has focused on financial speculation and propping up property bubbles. And I'm going to put uh, an end to that today. We already own the majority of RBS Uh, the bank that we bailed out in 2008. Uh, And this really gives us an opportunity to uh, put uh, our banking sector to work in the interests of communities and businesses up and down the country. And as of today, I'm going to be turning RBS into a uh, network of local banks with a public interest mandate to serve our local communities. And in light of that, from today onwards, I'm changing uh, the name of RBS from Royal Bank of Scotland to Royal Brexit saviour.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alice, what have you
1: got for us? First of all, um, Laurie for Chancellor. I really. <laughs> really Go enjoyed that Very persuasive. <laughs> yeah. I quite enjoyed that,
0: actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I has gone can to his head already. Yeah.
1: Um, so as as Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, I will be putting an end to this wasteful public land sell-off that is seeing us seed control over the main asset that we have in this country to, to address the housing crisis. Um, rather than just... Yeah, selling off um, the public goods that we have. We should be letting councils and communities invest in really good quality um, housing that is uh, environmentally friendly, that keeps all of our energy bills down, and that we can just afford as well. What's your joke? <laughs> I'd tell you some tax jokes, but I doubt you'd appreciate it.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh <God. laughs> Okay. <laughs> Stephen, save us. Save us, uh. Stephen. <laughs>
3: well, as Chancellor of this Checker, I want to announce today that from this day forward, we will be properly funding social care in this country. And I will also be announcing a fund uh, that will allow local areas to... Uh, invest in new models of social care provision so that we can find a modern way to uh, provide for our elderly uh, in a way that doesn't rely on excessive profit-making.
0: And your joke?
3: Okay, and my joke is, why did the budget make everyone laugh?
0: Why, Stephen?
3: Because it's a budget for smirking people. (laughs) (laughs) Like working people. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah,
0: good. Really funny. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm upset. No one went there with the your mama jokes. It would it, it would have been a better way to go, Stephen. Otherwise. Okay. Yeah. But thanks everyone. That was they, they were great. Thanks. And you're all you're all really good, chancellors.
3: Perhaps we'll stick with our jobs as economists and not <laughs> yeah. comedians. Yeah,
0: maybe maybe that's best. <laughs> So, thanks, Laurie, Alice, and Stephen. We look forward to your hopefully bloodless rise to power. (laughs) We'll be back next week with more of the Weekly Economics Podcast at the same time, same place. If you've got a question for an economist, you can tweet us. We are at Neff on Twitter. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to support the show, why not leave us a rating or review? The weekly economics podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation.